What's new? Are we recording? <laughs> We're always recording, Jeff. It's all recorded. <laughs> well, the way Pamela works, it like pops up a, uh, it pops up a little thing saying, "Do you want to record this call?" All right. And then I have to click yes. So maybe like the first four seconds or so, you're off. Okay. But then you're on. But then uh, you know I can always cut off a little bit at the beginning if uh, it's not funny enough. That's fine. Uh, I wanted to start by thanking Stuart Cam. He wrote us a Stack Overflow theme song. No kidding. Uh-oh. Yeah, he did, which was uh, very cool. He's from Australia. I I granted him, put him on the beta list, which is a notepad. It's very exotic. Can you play it? Are you are you set up with a great uh, playing technology? Uh, I do not. But one thing I wanted to mention is uh, while Jared was here, uh, that's the guy I'm working with on Stack Overflow, uh, he listens to a lot of podcasts, including ours, and he was sort of letting me audit some of them. And, and I really decided, I, I kind of agree with you. I don't like a long introduction. I don't even really like audio themes. Mm-hmm. I just think it's, it's, it's sort of unnecessary on some level. I don't know. It seems more polished, but then it's just like something you have to fast forward through to get to the meat of the podcast. So I'm sort of ambivalent about it. Yes. Yeah, Steve Gilmore, this Gilmore gang, he used to have like a 15 minute <laughs> advertising introduction with all kinds of Oh, it was just awful. And then he'd divide his podcast up into like four parts. And so eventually you just learn just to fast forward to 1612 or whatever it was on every podcast. Oh, that's kind of like uh, episodes of like The Sopranos where you know, there's always that introduction, which is cool the first time, right? Right, then trying to catch you up. Time, every, well, not not even that, but just like him driving to New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. And it's like theme song and like the credits and stuff and – it just all seems kind of unnecessary. It's I don't know. So I, I kind of like this concept of the warm start. I guess I've warmed up to this. Warm it's kind of cool when when you look at uh, when you look at uh, old t- old TV shows like even sitcoms, they would have these like long minute introductions. They play like a little rock song, and then there would be the whole story, the whole background story. And by the time those shows got into syndication, the the minute long introduction was down to like an eight second version of the same thing. The only introduction I remember really liking was Get Smart. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's going through all the doors. Yeah, that was that was great. I think they're remaking that with like Steve Carell, right? So we'll see how that turns out. All right. Is that is that a new series or like a movie, Get Smart? No, a movie. movie. Just a movie version Good. of Get Smart. So we can get it over with and get the heck out of there. Don't but I did want to... Wanna- I did want to thank Stuart Cam for recording that. I think we're probably not going to use it for the reasons I outlined, but... We could play it at the end and then, you know, if people want to... Listen to it <laughs> as 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 a fade out. So I now have uh, 234 private beta signups. So I, I think we're probably good on the private beta for now. I mean, if you really really want to be in, then you can email me. And again, that's the the right wow. passage. Figure out how to email me. Evidently, a lot of people are able to figure it out, which is good. Uh, but but I think we're probably covered uh, for for the initial private beta. Uh, okay, great. Now. Uh, so did you did you do anything exciting over the memorial? I forgot it was a holiday. I did the typical programmer thing where I only know it's a holiday when the Google homepage changes. That's how I know it's a holiday because Google changed their logo. Oh yeah, you don't have a job. Well, I mean you do. <laughs> didn't you? Didn't didn't the Stack Overflow headquarters have the day off? You got into work and it was locked. Like, yes. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was, well, what I do I do now? You, it was nice. It was stand really out nice. Front of your, stand out in your driveway in your pajamas with your cup of coffee in your hand. Trying yes. to decide how to get to work. Yes. 
Yes. Uh, it w- I gotta say, it was nice having another developer here. I had forgotten what that was like. Actually, it's <laughs> only been like, gosh, two months. It hasn't been even been that long since I worked basically from home. And somebody actually on Twitter asked me if I could write an article about working from home. But I think I'm a very bad role model. Like I'm, I'm disinclined to write about that because I think I have. Yeah, it, it's a problem for me. So like too many distractions. <laughs> Not distractions so much as like I, I'm sort of a hermit by nature anyway. So this sort of encourages some of my worst sort of antisocial tendencies. Now, there's a lot of these, like, uh, shared workspace places that people are setting up. It's like an office with some desks, and you join with a membership. The problem is, though, I'm kind of a snob about the setup that I need. So I would need actually a place where I could bring my three monitors and my desktop PC. I'm not one of those people who just take a laptop and... I'm kind of a snob about that. I need my mouse. I need my displays a certain way. Um, so that I'm sure that they don't have like a no mouse rule at these places. I'm pretty sure you could bring in a mouse. Well, did you see? There's, <laughs> and and I bet you could bring a lot of monitors, so you might get some funny looks. There was a really funny uh, group. Gosh, I'm gonna have to look them up later. But they do these really funny sort of performance art comedy things with with a bunch of people that coordinate and cameras and stuff. One that they did was they went to a Starbucks and brought a whole bunch of desktop PCs, like full towers. Mm-hmm. So there, there's like four or five people sitting there with these full size oh. CRTs, <laughs> like 19 inch monitors. Oh my god! <laughs> and the people. People in there are like, what is going on? It was, it was very funny. So that's what I, I mentally envision when I go to one of these places. Like, I pull up with, like, you know, a car full of Those equipment. are hilarious. No, but you could get, like, um, like one of those desktop replacement laptops with a gigantic, like a gamer's laptop with a big, huge screen. Ta-da. I'm such a snob, though. I am such a snob when it comes to hardware. I mean, I, you know, I build my own PCs, and it's probably all totally unnecessary, but I really get into it, and... Yeah, it's tough. But that said, they do have places where you can – you end up – what you can do is sublet, like on Craigslist. The best piece of advice I got was to look for cheap office sublets on uh-huh. Craigslist because a lot of places have just like an extra room you know, yeah. at the building, and you can get a pretty good deal uh, on that. So that's something I eventually may look into. For now, I'm just going to be content with the status quo until we get the site sort of up and running to some degree. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah, what you but can it, do is is call like appliance repairman and pizza delivery guys and stuff like that, and then you can have a little human interaction. <laughs> yeah. Could you check the refrigerator? I think uh, I don't know. I think some ice cream melted. It might have been out of, might have left it out. I'm more likely the, to. The ice cream did definitely melt. You know, in my weaker moments, I have actually considered uh, just posting on Craigslist that I want someone to play rock band with. Although my wife plays rock band with me quite a bit, but I'm more inclined to invite them over to play. Rock band, and you know Tuesday is a very exciting day because every week they have new songs for Rock Band on Tuesday. So, oh really? This, this Do they have is, old songs? The trouble is, all the songs are like too new for me. I've never heard of any of them. Well, there's actually most of the songs are from the '70s. Actually, if you sort them by date, there's a lot of songs from the '70s. Really? Uh, it, it encompasses. Yeah, the '60s gets a little rough because that's getting pretty prehistoric in terms of rock. That is prehistoric. Uh, but '70s, I should know some of those songs. Yeah. So this they week have it was. A convoy. That's a great song. Breaker, breaker, good buddy. That's that's a classic. Yeah. I have the I have the I have that ripped from an actual CD set. I'm a big '70s music fan. Actually, I have like 20, 30 discs of '70s music. Cool. Yeah. Uh, but this week it was the the Cars. Sort of, yep. You know, pop funk. I guess you'd say pop punk funk uh, band. The Cars. The, the their complete album, which is great because it has like moving in stereo and best friends girl and things like that. I'm I'm a big music fan, so. 
What's That's new what I was the asking you. this week? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. You were no, asking. No, no, no. Well, I was asking if I could. Uh, I wanted to get um, Fog Creek a copy of Rock Band so you guys could have it there. But I didn't. I didn't know if you guys oh, yeah. had room for it. And then you could live vicariously through us because we'd be just rocking it out while you're sitting in your house <laughs> trying, to t- trying to teach your dog to play Rock Band. Come on. Exactly. If, I, if you give him a little treat. Yeah, are you guys actually moving offices? I know uh, we are moving offices, but it's 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 one of those irritating, taking forever kind of situations, I see. where the the contractors won't return my calls, and oh god, I don't even want to don't even want to okay. talk about it. Okay, well, <sighs> you know what? One of the things I always liked about uh, end of the reading summer. about well, I, I know people complain a little bit about the self-promotional nature of, of some of the stuff we talk about. <laughs> uh, but I, I always did really admire the way you, you treated working environment as sort of a first-class citizen at Fod Creek. You know, you, you gave a lot of consideration to having that is true. A, pleasant, a pleasant place to work that actually is amenable to, to the way programmers need to work. Yeah. There's an article in this month's uh, Inc. magazine, for those of you that um, have access to a what were they called? Newsstand? Well, or maybe a bookstore. You go there and they have these things called magazines and you can buy one that's called Ink and it's a magazine for a small business. And I've got an article in there this month about a new office space. Oh, cool. Actually kind of read that. That's not available online at all though? Uh, it will be online, but they, but uh, in order to encourage subscriptions, I assume, or out of incompetence, either one, yes. they, uh, they don't publish my articles on their website with any kind of schedule or regularity or at any kind of predictable URL. Okay. So uh, it will show up on the web. Uh, it's just hard to know when. Okay, Sometimes cool. I don't even know, which is why I don't link to them. But um, Well, you've talked a little bit about that in some of our yeah. offline calls, and I, I'm, I would enjoy reading about that. Because I, June issue of Inc.com. I, I could talk about it now. I mean, I'd be happy to tell people we've got uh, – let's see, what should I talk about? Like what we're doing to make the office nice. <laughs> you know – I, I actually I like looking at a lot of these uh, online um, office space uh, porno websites. <laughs> um, my definition uh, for the any of you who are new the definition of pornography is looking at pictures of things you can't have. So if you're stuck in some kind of a you know cube farm or something, you can go to uh, Office Snapshots. Uh, let's see what's the what's the URL of Office Snapshots. Who cares? Type Office Snapshots into Google, and it'll give you the real URL. Look at that, officesnapshots.com. Uh, and see pictures of uh, all kinds of dot-com um, sites, dot-com oh. uh, and software companies, and what their offices look like. And um, some of them are pretty cool. If you look closely, though, and if you're really paying attention to this, what you'll discover is that even the coolest offices have cool common areas, like Foosball room, coffee shop, cafeteria, volleyball court, gym, whatever they may have in the common areas. And if you actually get to the pictures of where the people actually work, they're, shall we say, not so cool, actually. (laughs) Uh, So everybody was all passing around these links to the Google Zurich offices, which just like incredible. Like from the third floor to the second floor, there's a slide you can use to go to lunch. Like there's a hole in the floor, and then there's a slide, and it lands on a nice rubbery cushion area. And so you can slide down there on your way to lunch. On the way up, you have to take the elevator. And uh, there's just all kinds of just cool game areas, and there's like a dark room with an aquarium and lots of uh, relaxing chairs that you can lean back on uh, and take naps. 
uh, it's just it's just a very very cool looking office. On the other hand, there is not I could not find a single picture of the dozens of pictures that they had in the set showing an actual person at their desk. The only picture I could find it looked like uh, it was just a big gigantic room with a whole bunch of very small like four foot desks crammed in there and uh, people working at basically a typical typical developer workstation. You know, maybe one computer and two monitors isn't like that. But uh, not much attention is, is 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 put on where the people actually work. There's a lot of attention on the common areas because that's kind of a less expensive way to make it nice. And we did we tried to do the opposite. We tried to put like a lot of emphasis on where you were sitting when you were trying to be programming. Um, so uh, some of the key features that we're going to have in a new office, which we've never had before, are um, uh, desks, uh, mechanical desks, where you push a little button and they go up and down to different heights. And that allows you to get the height right to begin with for ergonomic purposes, but it also lets you stand up for part of the day uh, if you want to. Um, some people have reported that that reduces back pain dramatically if you have back pain from from sitting in place all day. Uh, you know, it's just stand up an hour a day, and that helps a lot. Uh, so we got these desks that 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 uh, that move up and down. Um, we've got the uh, ridiculous power strip. Everybody's got like four outlets <laughs> at desk height, uh, so you can plug stuff in without. Messing around, crawling around under the desk. Wow. Um, what are some of the other features that we have that are pretty nice? We have, uh, and and these are these are you know there's 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 obviously this things like a shower, coffee bar, lunch room, library, that kind of stuff. That's sort of the shared common fun areas, which we'll have a whole bunch of. But you know, part of our emphasis, obviously, and then the private offices, which I I have yet to find another company except for Microsoft and, and Apple, I think, that has private offices. Uh, for developers, private offices are definitely nice. I mean, I eventually had that at Vertigo, and I, I liked it. But I, you know, I'm weird in that I like to decorate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know that's going to sound kind of weird. How did you decorate your office? <laughs> I had a mobile. I had. With well, Bob I, actually, Fett, I'll, I'll, I'll link heads. it. I'll, I'll link it in, in in the actual summary of, of the podcast. But uh, there's, you know, remember that meme? Five things you didn't know about me. That whole meme. Yes. Been around for a while. Well, Nobody I finally ever did that. Me, so I didn't do that. No one, you're kidding. You're, that's a joke, right? No, it's true. <laughs> Are you serious? They didn't want to know. It's so viral. But as, as part <laughs> of that, I went ahead and put up pictures of my office space at Vertigo the way it was. Um, and you can sort of see it for yourself. Uh, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. Um, but people were very impressed with it for, for what it's worth. I had a scrolling LED display. I had art. Oh, nice. I had a mobile. A Zipple, they're called, right? Zipple? And of course, Zipper? my... my Zipple? Zipple. Zipple. What? What is a zipple? A scrolling LED display. Oh, I've never heard it referred to as that. But yeah, it was cool. So I, I, I very much appreciate it because I like to decorate. I, I appreciate this stuff, and I, I think it matters. I mean, I, I totally agree with you that you know the, the environment where you, you you physically sit down and work most of the time is, is incredibly important to your overall you know happiness as in the workplace. So I I encourage that. And this office snapshot site is cool. I'm definitely going to link that up. I didn't even know this existed, so that's awesome. Uh, yeah, they've done a pretty pretty nice job, and, and I'm sure we're going to blow all of those away when they come to – and there's a lot of bad office space there too. And um, somewhere – somebody put up a video of Yahoo, the Yahoo campus the other day, and fake Steve Jobs was making fun of it for just being um, – because they had – and this is the only – once again, it was like seven minutes showing their whole – Beautiful campus, showing all the public areas and the you know the coffee and the lunch and that kind of stuff and the gym, um, and about 13 seconds at the most showing where people actually worked, and that looked to be those ugly high cubicles. 
that's oh. just really awful cubicles that go almost to the ceiling with yes. the you know with the oatmeal colored cloth stuff. And oh. the people, in order to make their office feel cool, had just like de- decorated them with a lot of crap, which basically means a lot of broken old toys and stuff and posters that they've just strung up all over the place, and um, just awful. Yes, absolutely awful. So uh, uh, it looked kind of like dark and dismal. But um, I don't know if that's really true of all the Yahoo workspaces, or maybe uh, maybe the programmers have it nicer. I don't know. Did you ever watch the show? Did you ever watch? Did you ever watch the show MTV Cribs? Yeah, yeah, I I, I like that show because why would anybody in their right mind agree to be on that show? (laughs) Well, the one episode of Cribs that was great because a lot of it was sort of your stereotypical. I have tons of money, so I'm just going to buy the most ridiculous things I can and put them in this ridiculously large place. But it's still fun to watch, and some people had good taste and some didn't, and it was interesting to see that. The funniest one, though, was some musician that was actually living with his parents. So they did a crib show of basically his parents' crappy house. Oh. (laughs) So it was like, here's our crappy grill, and it was like, you know, the ultimate yin, you know, the opposite of all that other stuff. I thought that was a YouTube meme. There was some kid, and he's like, you know, welcome to my crib, and he's basically showing his bedroom in his parents' house. It's like, it his, like that, but I, here's where the magic is done, and he goes down to the basement where he's got his, you know, his cheapo Casio keyboard. <laughs> That's about it. I, I think this guy was in like a punk band, so it gave him a little bit, you know, maybe credibility for that particular genre. To be uh, living with his parents. It was so uh, yeah, MTV because Office Snapshots is MTV Cribs of the office, uh, the programmers' offices. But it's not, uh, you know, so far I haven't seen anything that's very inspiring, and I haven't seen a whole lot of places that just look like they would be really nice places to actually do your work, other than, you know, what what most people build, which is a sea of cubes or a sea of tables. And then uh, if they're they're like a rich old-school company like Yahoo, then they've got a nice cafeteria and a nice coffee bar and a nice gym where you can work out. And if they're like a new startup company like um, you know, one of these Web 2.0 startups that has venture capital, then you know there's a there's a sort of a loving photograph of the espresso machine. <laughs> you know, it's just like oh, that's nice. You have an espresso machine, but you know, kind of lame. Yeah. So I, I take it you're not enamored of the approach where all the programmers sort of have a huddle where there's more of a communal working area, so people can theoretically communicate, like the whole pair programming style of well we do we, we recognize that pair programming is very common and it does actually um burst out uh, regularly and so uh all the desks at fog creek are long straight desks to make pair programming uh easy and appropriate this i mean we even pay attention to things like where the legs of the desks are so uh you can pair program comfortably and uh but but what we do have is you got a bunch of private offices if you want a pair program you roll your nice air on chair out into the hallway and then Using your legs, you continue to push your neuron chair down the hallway a little bit and into your friend's office where you pull up alongside them and pair program. And uh, if you if you were to go into our programmer's hallway, you'd see uh, just tons of communication, tons of, uh, you know, there, at any given time, there'll probably be two people pair programming, but also a lot of people that are able to just sit and quietly concentrate and get a lot of serious work done um, because they can close the door when they don't want to communicate with other people. So I think that there's a feeling that private offices are isolating, and um, that's just... This is not true at all. What it what it means is you have a little bit more control over when you get interrupted. You don't have to be interrupted just because the person who has a desk next to yours is having a conversation that you're not interested in participating in. I totally agree. And I think it becomes a personality issue too. I mean certain some developers are extremely introverted and really don't seek that out. Yeah. Uh, Those are the ones that will IM you when they're sitting right next to you. 
<laughs> well, here's a funny little side. Did you know Even my if wife? You don't use I am. My wife subscribes to my Twitter feed because she feels like that's the only way she can get all the information about what I'm doing. So, <laughs> how many Program, What are some other programmers? Uh, I'm trying to think of some other things that the programmers need uh, that we try to focus on for their actual workspace. Obviously, you know the, the setup that they get uh, right now. The default is a 30 inch and a 21 inch. Um, we found that a 30 inch horizontally next to a 21 inch uh, vertically is about the maximum screen real estate that you can see without seriously damaging your neck. Mm-hmm. What do you have? What kind of monitors do you have? You said three. Well, I'm a big triple monitor guy because I feel like then you have a center. Um, mm-hmm. The only trick is you have to have two video cards, which rules out. Well, pretty much you're, you're done with the laptop. So oh, it's yeah. pretty much you're limited to desktop machines, which is fine with me. Uh, two video cards, and then I have three. What size are these? What size are these monitors? Twenty-four, three twenty-four-inch monitors. So that's. I think that's a little bit more real estate than we have with the thirty-inch plus the twenty-one-inch. I think is what we do. Maybe we do a thirty plus a twenty-four. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I and don't then we mo- never have enough. I think there's most no of our, uh, enough. Well, the trouble though is that you know at some point the the monitors are just too far into your per- periphery to be useful for any purpose other than I don't know like what do you, what, what, do you, what would you put there? like you got three monitors let's say I gave you a fourth monitor and you put it to the left of your left monitor what, what would you put on there well you you have limitations in terms of how far you're willing to turn your head that's for sure and how far up and down you're willing to move your neck I know that sucks having to move your neck all day long <laughs> but within within the constraints of, of yeah. normal field of vision, I, I would say this is pretty much the limit because these are yeah. all widescreen, so it, it is actually fairly wide. It could be right. slightly taller. I think I could do three 30-inch monitors. Um, I'd actually need a bigger desk at that point, which is kind of sad. <laughs> well, what we like is the th- you use 30-inch monitor, you can bring up uh, your IDE if you're a cool programmer or Vim if you're a Fog Creek programmer, full screen, and just does have like an infinite room for editing and email and all that kind of stuff on your main 30-inch. Main uh, and then you've, you've always got another monitor that doesn't have stuff on it where you can pop up uh, your web browser that you're using for debugging. Mm-hmm. So that lets you be sure that you always have an exposed uh, web browser view while you're stepping through the debugger. When you're doing any kind of GUI programming and, and a lot of web programming as well, uh, it's important to have dedicated real estate for the app that you're debugging because otherwise, like, let's say you're, you're trying to debug the window activation event or the, you know, the window expose or any kind of... In other words, if you're actually trying to alt-tab between the window that you're debugging and your debugger in order to get them both to show on the screen then you're actually introducing changes in program state, which for certain types of GUI programming may actually make it really difficult to debug things. Right. Did that make sense? Like, for example, the very the very exposed event that you're trying to debug may have been set off by the fact that you all tabbed from the debugger into the app. Oh, absolutely. And one thing I find very helpful is this, if you're running Windows, there's this neat utility uh, called WinSplit Revolution. And one of the challenges as I sort of grew into larger and larger monitors and I wrote a blog entry about this but I think it's actually kind of a big problem for casual and typical users much less power users is you have you spend a lot more time arranging windows you can't really maximize anything because it makes no sense I mean you're not going to maximize like this office snapshots website if I maximize it there'll just be an obscene amount of white space on mm-hmm. either side of this little strip of content in the middle. So mm-hmm. you spend a lot more time sort of messing around with Windows. So what WinSplit Re- Revolution does is it overloads the the numpad, so I can press Control-Alt in a directional 
uh, arrow on the numpad, and it moves the window to that quadrant, and there's different... You, you can press it multiple times to cycle through. So you can sort of Lego block together your windows and it, without dragging and sizing. And it's got to be horrible on the Mac, where you can only size in the bottom right. I, I still oh, yeah, that is sort of a weakness of the Mac. Yeah, yeah. It's just, but historically, I mean, think about just the, the X size, the overhead of dealing with Windows. And I, I don't mean to single out Apple, because I think it's just a GUI penalty that everybody pays. That yeah. We weren't really meant to, to mess around with Windows. You were just meant to you know work on an app at the appropriate size and have it. Yeah, man- managing your Windows is definitely something that has never quite gotten right. And the trouble is that you know if you're an app and you try to reinvent it by having your own rules, which every app does at least try to remember its former XY position, and uh, dimensions, right? Almost every app will come up with its former XY position and dimensions. But if you just do that naively, if you just say, I will always preserve my XY position and dimensions, somebody runs two copies of your app, they wind up directly on top of one another, which is the only thing you could possibly not want. And in fact, may actually make you believe, make the user believe that the the second copy of the app hasn't really launched. So that's always annoying. Yeah, there's a couple of things that and you touched on one that I, I wish window managers you know, across all platforms were smarter about, e.g., when I open a new browser instance, I probably don't want it on top of my other ones. Like if there's actual space on the screen that's not occupied by something, maybe right. you could put it there. That would be nice. The other thing that's cool in some apps... Yeah, the the Windows default would be to put it like in a, like slightly offset from the previous one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I realize there's a lot so of... So you can see both title bars. Yeah, and there's a lot of ways to do this, and I'm, I'm not proposing this is the run, one right way. The other thing that I would like to see a lot more of, and Skype actually does this as well as Winamp, is the – have you seen that thing where as you drag the window close to the edge, the border of a monitor, it'll actually sort of snap into place? Yeah, sort snap of, to edge. That's a great thing. Um, yeah, um, I think all windows should do that. I think it should just be built into the <laughs> operating system on every platform. Yeah. Because I mean, when I get close to an edge, I mean 99.9% of the time, be. I want it to snap in there. Yeah. So I feel like we've got a long way to go, and I think as people start getting into larger monitors, they're going to run into this more and more often. It becomes really a pain. I mean, it's great to have a huge monitor. I mean, nobody's going to complain about, you know, I have a 40-inch monitor. How terrible, right? Yeah. (laughs) But you spend a lot more time messing around with these windows, and it just doesn't feel like work. It feels like... You know, a lot of the the Microsoft uh, apps, well, actually Visual Studio is the key one that switched to uh, a tabbed interface instead of the old MDI. And MDI is theoretically more flexible because you can put windows anywhere you want and you have great control over the windows go, whereas in the new version of Visual Studio you basically have a screen you can split it into two or split it into four and each one can have a bunch of tabs in it and uh, actually that turns out to be much more useful than the old MDI style where you had to individually manage all these little itsy bitsy windows oh yeah, yeah. The current, that, that seems to be the new trend, paint.net copied that and uh uh, that seems to be the the way we're kind of going is more towards um, tabs. And I think tabs, to a certain extent, are are better than the solution we had, but I think they have there's some problems there as well. Um, before we go too much further, I want to figure out how many questions do we have that you filled. Um, I have I have two, but that's only because I haven't reviewed this week's. But I have two from last week. Okay. Uh, before we get into that, I did want to talk about OpenID because I think you're going to have strong opinions oh, about yeah. this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Open ID. I want to. I'm going to have an opinion. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but okay. So as as Jared and I sat down and started thinking through some of the login stuff, and actually a friend of mine, John Galloway, who still works at Vertigo, great guy, um, recommended that we look at Open ID because, well, 
one from a selfish perspective of like, why even have to write password handling code, salting code, hashing code, forget my password code? Mm. Why even have to do anything? Why not just yeah. outsource that entirely um, to to a third party? And you know, I'm very skeptical by nature, so I was like, okay, this this I don't know, maybe let me look at this. And when I looked at it, I actually went through the sign up process, got an open ID, um, and the problem they're trying to solve is exactly the problem that I was considering, which is I don't want to be yet another website that adds yet another cognitive load of, oh, you got to create another username and another password for Stack Overflow that yeah. you then have to remember or put on a keychain or have your browse. I, it's just more stuff, right? I just don't want to create Is there, more uh, Does anybody have a good way of handling that? Like, literally, I w- if I go to a website and it needs to be registered, my current way of handling that is uh, Password Safe, which Bruce Schneier wrote, so I trusted that it was good. And Password Safe is a little program where you can just store all your passwords in it. And it will even generate um, nice, uh, relatively secure passwords for you uh, for each website. And it will keep them all, keep track of them all. Uh, only trouble is I haven't quite figured out a way to synchronize my Password Safe database among all the computers that I use. So I just, if I want to go to a new website from home and it's asking me to register, I need to remote desktop into my computer at work, uh, run Password Safe, log on to that, use the special password for that. And it's just real frustrating. Well, it's a real right. pain. And that's why I found it amusing because some of the people in the comments, I had a blog post about this, and I got some really good comments as usual. And yeah. one of the themes in the comments was, oh, it's no big deal. You just run this password program, then you have this encrypted USB key. I'm like, how is a that? A what? <laughs> An encrypted USB key that you carry with you? Yeah, that you carry with you. I mean, all well, these things. What if it gets shot? What well, if that, that breaks or, or gets uh, you go demagnetized or something? Or Well, I just thought it was amusing that adding all this stuff was viewed as like better than a website, right? Like, I mean, well, okay. Does, if anybody has a better solution for me than what I'm currently doing, that, let's let's do that. Everybody, uh, write in next week <laughs> and tell us what your way is of keeping track of your passwords on all the dinky little websites that you visit. Like your, like you know, hammocks.com. I went to buy a hammock. I think some moths ate my hammock last year. I had a nice hammock, and and I, I went and got it out of the storage thingy, and it was just ripped to pieces. So, so let me. So anyway, so I go back to hammocks.com and I go to, and they want me to make a password and right. a username for hammocks.com. I'm never going to buy another hammock. Well, yeah. actually, next year the moths are going to eat this hammock too. So I'm only going to buy one hammock a year. I don't need usernames and passwords for the hammocks.com. Well, I agree. I, and, and, by the way, and I don't view Stack Overflow as. So, uh, so if you have a suggestion for a good way to keep track of your passwords to idiot websites that you're probably never going to visit again. Uh, well, the, the longer-term uh, solution—that's what I'm getting work for at. Multiple computers. I, I think the longer-term solution is OpenID. The, but yeah, but chi- that requires all these websites to go along with it. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's a chicken and egg problem, and yes. I think I've decided after working with OpenID, I feel it's workable. I feel it's mature enough. They're on OpenID 2.0, so they fixed some of the initial sort of weirdnesses yeah. implemented. And it already fixed a lot of the like there were these initial like uh, well, Passport.com. Uh, there were these initial attempts to do something like this that were just not workable in the OpenID way because they were basically Microsoft. Yeah. Well, you get to choose your provider. And that actually has That's a downside, as I found out, because some of the providers are kind of sloppy in the way that they work. <laughs> like, they may not use HTTPS, which is, like, really, what? really bad. <laughs> what providers like, don't use? Really? Uh, at least one of them. I, I don't want to name any names, but I thought that was oh, odd. Do, do, do tell. But but the good providers. So there's really two key things you get. Names, out of this. One names, is names, names. so let me let me use your hammocks.com as an example. This is a low value <laughs> set of credentials, right? So you should have no problem attaching this to your open ID. So you would have an open ID. No, they store my credit card. This is not low value. 
Low oh. value is like, oh, would you like to post on, 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 on Jeff Atwood's blog post? That's low value. Well, I think... I think High value has my credit card and can buy hammock accessories. Okay, so, well, first of all, let me make a distinction. You're talking about there's some set of information that will be stored by the OpenID provider, okay? Mm-hmm. That may not include your credit card. So they wouldn't actually maybe not have that information, only the hammock site is. I'm talking about, like, low-value stuff like, okay, your name, which is fairly public information, your address, which let's assume yeah. you're getting it shipped to the office. That's public information. You don't really care about this stuff. Not necessarily your credit card, but, like, you know, your date of birth, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing with your OpenID provider. So. Okay. When you went to hammocks.com and they said, oh, create an account, you could, if they were OpenID enabled, you would say, here's my OpenID URL, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's the first time you've done this with them, you do have to enter, you know, login password uh, in your provider. So you basically get redirected to the provider. Right. The provider takes your, you know, password. And then at that point, they would shunt all this information. It's called attribute exchange. This is where the value comes in, in my opinion. Um, they would shunt all your address, you know, your, 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 uh, Age, you know, whatever, again, information, basic information you would need. So you don't have to key it in every single time you go to a website. Wait, so wait, wait. Do I have any control over this? So, like, every website that I go to with OpenID is going to get all my information that I gave some OpenID a- provider? Again, this this is where it comes into having a good provider. So with a good provider, you can say, okay, share this, 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 and this. right? But uh-huh. don't share this, right? Okay. Um, so it's all it's all sort of determined by the provider. That's the downside of, okay. Who are the best providers? Is, is Google a provider? No, Google is not a provider. The, the one that I like the most at the moment is called, uh, I believe it's myopenid.com. Let me make sure I'm saying that correct. What? Yeah. I thought that... Uh, they do a really oh. good job. I do like myopenid.com. I, I recommend... So if you want to actually test it, and again, it's a chicken and egg problem, but I, I feel like with Stack Overflow, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to force people to use OpenID, but... This is really, I think, a better long-term solution for the web, and it really could work because it's a distributed version of, of something like Passport, so people should be more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not that yeah. there aren't flaws. I mean, there's I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked that... Uh, that uh, what the heck are these? I'm looking at this list. I'm kind of... I'm, I'm, I really kind of... Surprised. I thought these people all joined the OpenID Consortium, like Yahoo and Google and stuff like that. Well, there's there's a way they can do it. They can become uh, providers, but not – I can't remember the exact terminology without the, the document in front of me. But they, they, they hold the credentials, but they won't accept them. <laughs> in other words, they'll send okay. the sites. <laughs> so it's, it's very much one-sided depending on how they adopt it. Ideally, they, they would become uh, bidirectional where they would accept OpenID credentials as well as being an OpenID provider. Right. But a lot of sites are like, oh, we support OpenID, but they're really just providers. So – all that really means is you could use, you know, uh, Jeff Atwood dot Yahoo dot com as your, you know, Open ID provider on on my blog comments, for example. Okay, so wait, wait, why wouldn't why wouldn't we tell people to use something like Yahoo or Google as their Open ID provider? Well, you can. I found that Yahoo doesn't really do attribute exchange very well. Which oh, okay. Is a big, big value add because well, this is depressing that you even have to know about this. Well, yeah. I, you know, and, this is just gonna this is gonna break it. If this isn't like standard, if this isn't a simple thing that everybody does in exactly the same way, and that they're all just as good, and you don't have to sit around figuring out like what the weaknesses are of you know choosing who your best that, that that can just kill it because people will say, you know what, if I have to decide, I'm just not going to do it at all. 
there's definitely a new third party involved because in, in the old world way of creating an account like on hammocks.com, the only entities involved were you and hammocks.com. Right. Now there but is I, a third but I trust party. Google more than hammocks.com. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I think shouldn't. Absolutely. Yahoo does a good job. I don't, I don't want to be uh, negative. And about yeah, Yahoo. I trust Yahoo more than uh, hammocks.com. I even trust Microsoft more than hammocks.com. Right. And especially if it's just being responsible for. Uh, authenticating me and saying, yes, indeed, this username really is this password. You know, in fact, if you just simplify it, strip, strip it down to everything, to nothing else other than my username is always going to be, I wish it was email address, but fine, let it be a URL, uh, although email address would be easier. And there's just people like Google are willing to display a page that takes that username, uh, sorry, that that email address or that URL, and then prompts me for my password. And if I type it incorrectly, they're willing to send some trusted, authenticated, signed widget schmageggy attribute thing to that site saying, yes, indeed, this is that person. They have provided a password. So really all it is is a way to only have one password. And if I change my password on Google, then it's changed on all those other sites. Yes. And all that site needs to know is that they, they are pretty pretty sure that they have Spolsky at gmail.com. Please don't send email to that address um, <laughs> as they're uh, logged on. Uh. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I agree it's got a long way to go, but I, I think it has a lot of promise. I I, I think it's something I want to support. I mean, okay. one from a selfish perspective, honestly, we, we write less code this way. And well, so the real question is, do we want to support it to the extent that we don't have our own password system at all? We require you to go out there and get an open ID? That's pretty much the way it's going to be. So we may be the very first site doing this. Well, you have to you have to caveat that with the idea that anonymous access is going to be pretty much a, pretty close to a first class citizen in the Stack Overflow world. There's all you'll right. be able to enter questions, answer questions, and actually even accrue reputation as an as long as you have cookies enabled. So nothing the, goes uh, wrong with your cookies. Right. It's just if you don't want them to be a little more stable, you'll want to. Right. So if all you care about is, hey, I want to be totally anonymous, then just disable your cookies, and you'll be able to do Wikipedia-type stuff, like edits where basically it's tied to your IP address because that's all we really have at that point, and we have to... So, so the question is, what is the absolute minimum set of steps that somebody has to do? Let's say, like, probably most people don't have OpenID accounts. Although they might have, you know, if you can just use your Yahoo or, or Google account... Well, the problem MSN with Yahoo... As an, yeah. You have to enable the Open ID side, which is really annoying. So even if you have a Yahoo Mail account or whatever, you have to go in and actually say, "Okay, now I want to be, I want to opt in to Open ID." So again, that's why I was a little disappointed in the way that Yahoo. If did there's it. anybody listening from Yahoo who knows why that is, could you please call in? And tell us. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Podcaststackoverflow.com. I, I figure. Yeah, in the worst case scenario, it's not that much worse than creating an account on Stack Overflow. Like if we had a traditional, okay, create a new account form. It's really not that much more work, and you get an open ID out of it. Okay. Okay, but but the, but the question is like, uh, uh, is it not? Mu- is it like if if it's us creating an account for you, we can um, make it uh, zero. We can make it easy. Like we control the whole process. Whereas with OpenID, we have to send you someplace, and who knows what the process will be. Well, yeah. I mean, so we've got to give you this page of instructions, and you're like, oh, God. 
I need an open ID provider. Uh, what am I going to do? And then you're like, well, if you would like to use this, do this. If you want, and all of a sudden we're making, asking you to make decisions. And then you got to open the instructions in one window and go to that other site. And then you know you're going to have to find your little password file where you have all your passwords written down and added into there. Well, again, I'm I'm very much a skeptic, and I went in expecting it to suck, and I was pleasantly surprised. Maybe my standards are very very low. <laughs> I, I did not find it an onerous process, and I am very cranky about stuff like this. Okay. So, I, I, part of it's I, I'm going to go on gut instinct. I mean, if there's a huge rebellion and nobody ever creates an account because they think an open ID is the worst thing they've ever seen, then we might rethink that. Well, it's hard uh, to but, know. I mean, if uh, uh, okay, it looks like I don't have an open ID account because when I search for my open ID, <laughs> looks like I've never made one. Um, uh, if if uh, we may not know, we may just wind up having half the number of people registering it because the process is just like that much more onerous. Because whenever you have a, a like a seven step process. It always knocks out a certain number of people, and then if you can make it a five-step process, you suddenly discover that you have four times as many people signing up, because at every step you might be losing half the people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think at this point it's, it's a risk I'm willing to take, and then we'll revisit it later if it turns out to be a bad decision. But okay, uh, I, I'm fairly comfortable with it because a we have a really good anonymous experience, like very first, better than 90% of the websites on the internet. We're going to have a really mm-hmm. first class anonymous experience, mm-hmm. and the two, our audience is kind of a technical audience anyway. I feel like these are the kind of people that really should know about OpenID. I mean, I think it's solving a very real problem on the internet that programmers sh- should be aware of and sort of should be supporting. Just, yeah, it should be supporting it on some level. Even if you say, okay, I hate it, or you know, here's the problems with it. It's like, well, how can we fix it? I really want to fix this problem. I feel like it's something programmers should be doing. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of, of evangelizing it a little bit as well. But but again, I try it. Really, go to myopenid.com. Anyone who's listening to this and says, Jeff, you're full of crap. I, maybe I am full of crap. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right now. All right, go here to myopenid. Somebody take a uh, got a stopwatch. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I would do that. I, no, no, no. I'm doing it right now. Sign up for an open ID. Okay, that's I can do that. Forty-two thirteen. All right. It's downloading. It's SSL. Your open ID URL is house sites that accept open ID know you. You can use your name and you want to be known by. Hmm, S is not available. Oh, Spolsky's available. <laughs> uh, all right. Now I need a password. Well, that's another advantage is you can typically get names that you actually want versus like on Yahoo. It's like how many names are taken on Yahoo? Yeah. Pretty much every name ever. Yeah. Open – uh, sorry, my open ID, username Spolsky. And then, see, I can just click generate password on uh, – um, what's it called? What is it called? Uh, password save, which I'm using. And it generates a nice secure password for me. And it says it's not only oh, the site recognizes that it's secure. Enter your email address. Uh, it's optional, which is nice. That's cool. And the email address just lets you recover your password. The fine print. Enter the text from the image below. Oh, Jesus. Gotcha. I can't read it. I can only read the first one. Fat. What the hell does that say? you got to read harder. I, th- I think it says various. Wait, let me play the... Oh, look, I can play it out loud. Can't hear the sound? No. no, I don't hear the sound. Oh. Oh my god, these audio captures. <laughs> it's like. It's actually obfuscated, even the audio? Yeah. 
Really? It's like a, it's like a room full. Of, oh, it's like that movie with Vim Vendors where he's an angel that's fallen to earth and he can hear everybody's thoughts that he's walking by. Yeah. That was I remember terrible. that movie. They remade that with Nicolas Cage, and it wasn't any better in the remake. Really? Uh, what, what, yeah. what, what, what was the movie called? Uh, oh. Angels on the Wings of Angels. The following. It yeah. was very. It was painful. I, I'm trying to forget it now. All right. This is a very very uh, evil captcha. Um, okay. Check your email. What? But the email was optional. All right. I think I got one. You got one. So now the next job, and I don't think we necessarily need to do it on this podcast, but <laughs> find a site that actually accepts. How long did that take? Okay. Uh, how long was I was I was I was I doing that? I don't know. Maybe a minute. I didn't, get my, I didn't get the email. Maybe it's in my junk junk folder. Yeah. And that's the same stuff we would have to do to you, right? I mean, if we, if we oh, wrote yeah, that yeah. code, we would be doing the same exact thing. It's like, why reinvent the wheel so many times? Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Okay, so what happens if I go to this URL, which is my open ID? It says so, this page belongs to you. Edit this page. You can actually put some identity stuff there if you want to. It can be just a blank page. Add a persona. Personas is a fancy word for attribute exchange. So persona would be information that you want to be transmitted to a site. Ah, I can down, I can upload images. Yeah, your, your avatar could be part of that persona, right? So your avatar image, if the site is written correctly and the provider supports it, MyOpenID does, it will actually send down that image to the site. So if you're setting up a new account on Stack Overflow, yeah. you would download your avatar automatically. You wouldn't have well, to. I'm going to put a picture of Peter Falk. Of course. Because he was the star of uh, Wings of Desire. That's the movie we were talking about. Uh, uh, where he's just walking around uh, hearing um, hearing everything that everybody is thinking in all kinds of languages. It's really kind of interesting. Takes a while to figure out what's going on. Okay. So open ID. That wasn't so bad. That wasn't the end of the world. I had a little bit of fun. See? It's not so bad. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm now, what's cranky. a site that I can use open ID at that I can try well, this on? Now, there's the Catch-22. <laughs> <laughs> There's the chicken and egg <laughs> There's not very many. There's really not very many. I had to go. I think I found like a, a a life hacker post that had a few. So I was just experimenting. And you you really are at the mercy of a the provider. But my OpenID is a good provider. And b the site that's actually written to work with OpenID to actually do it correctly. And by correctly, I mean when you create a new account, it pulls down all that information through attribute exchange. You're not data entering like your email address. You know, your URL for your website, your avatar image, all that stuff. And we're going to do that correctly on Stack Overflow. We're going to pull down a ton of stuff from Attribute Exchange. Hey, this is cool. Oh, uh oh, now, so I'm trying it with PBWiki. But then it says, there's no PBWiki account associated with that open ID. Would you like to create one? And then it wants to into What you're falling into is implementation problems on their side. We're not going to do it that way. Right, right, right. Of course. We're just going to be like, hey, I know who you are. You're, you're yes. set. You're all set. There is Although we may want you to add more personal information other than what... Sure, sure. Uh, we're going to sort of... Let you add all kinds of interesting stuff. We are going to have profile pages on Stack Overflow, and you're free to put as much information as you want there, but we are going to try to pre-populate the heck out of it with your attributes from OpenID. Okay, so I like my OpenID. Who the, how the heck do they make money? Uh, I don't know. Looks like they're in Portland. Maybe they'll have upsell stuff that they do for fancier <laughs> profile pages and bling, and I, I don't know. I, I have no idea, honestly. I'm going to be in Portland uh, uh, this week, so um, if you guys from my open ID are paying attention, come come visit me at, at the Ruby on Rails conference and talk. Okay, 
Actually, they should. In fact, I'm going to email them yeah. so they do because I I, oh, I really okay. have started to believe in this stuff. Because mostly because I just I hate having 50 logins so much. I just can't remember anything. Yeah. Oh, it's painful. But so let's get to the the questions because I know we yes, questions. Do, do, do. This is John Dyer from Pennsylvania, and I have a question about the types of business domains that programmers are in. Fogbuzz is easily understood by programmers because they're used to tools like this. But what about developers involved in medical or insurance applications? These areas have very complex and detailed rules that are not common to most developers' general life. Joel's developers have to learn the Fogbuzz application code and the business rules, but the rules are relatively easy for developers to grok. Programmers in other areas face a different learning curve. I suggest that the effort to learn the business rules can be much larger than the application code. So in these situations, the one thing that can be controlled is the application code complexity. Having things like complex framework hierarchies and custom compilers can be a detriment because they add considerably to the code. In these situations, isn't it better to code mainly from things like the .NET framework libraries so that there is less to learn? Yeah, so that's kind of a rhetorical question, but um, you know, in general, in most application areas where programmers are working, it's easier for the programmers to learn the domain name than the domain, the domain, than for the users in that domain to learn the the programming. In other words, if a programmer goes and works in, for example, insurance, uh, and they have to learn actuary tables and that, whatever the insurance industry stuff may be that they have to learn in order to do their uh, job um, writing code for that domain. Um, but usually the programmers are probably more qualified to learn that stuff rapidly than the people actually working in that field would be to learn programming. Now, I say usually because I, I guess medicine is probably a, a humongous ex- ex- exception where the stuff that you know they may just not understand or that may take an entire medical degree to, to, to know well. Yeah, yeah, there was a couple a couple questions there, mm-hmm. and, and some of them were rhetorical. But I think it's a good springboard for uh, something I saw recently. Did you see Eric Sink had a nice post about his uh, ham radio operators and learning C? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? Yeah, that was really good. And so my answer to that is is not that you shouldn't learn C, but like, okay, let's take this question as a springboard. Would I rather have programmers that know, you know, manage code really well and the the domain that they're working in really well? Or would I rather, rather have programmers that know managed code really well and then decide, hey, I want to learn C just because I can. Like, to me, it's much more important to learn the business domain, mm. right? Than, than necessarily C. I mean, I view it as a, a fixed pie. You don't have infinite time to learn everything there is to learn. And I don't know. I, I feel like that time should be invested in lear- learning the business domain is a great place to spend effort like that versus, say, I, Eric Sink and Joel Spolsky say, i got to learn C because... If I don't, I'm not a real. Wait program. a minute! You managed to turn this around to whether or not you should learn C. <laughs> we were talking well, about business domain questions of. All right. Yeah, yeah, but no, okay. So I don't want to totally derail because I know we've talked about this a lot. But knowing the business domain is so important, and very few programmers actually do. I, I know that I spent a lot of time on the apps that I worked on trying to figure out what the heck it was the customers wanted. Like you, you, put you worked in on enterprisey software probably a lot more than I have because you worked for for right. did that for people, and. Um, but, but honestly, when, when, when you got on a project, you often had to learn the business domain, and it wasn't that hard, right, when you did? It's not hard in the sense that <laughs> understanding what people are saying to you is hard right. because people aren't good at communicating. Exactly. And but what is, they were trying to is, say was actually probably pretty simple if you could just friggin' tell what they were saying. It's like, you're like, oh, this is it. If it's greater than five, then, then A, otherwise B. That's the whole story. 
Yeah, but that's the more important life skill to me than learning C. I mean, I figure once you get to a certain degree in, in programming as a career, yeah. you're good enough at it, honestly. You really need to be good at these other things, like communicating communicating with other people, right? Being an example of that and learning the business domain. I guess that's my only point. I don't want to turn it into my little pet topic, but I, I really enjoyed uh, his article, uh, and he totally tricked me with his ham radio thing. I was like, oh, he's going to agree with me, and he tricked me. He actually agreed with yeah, me. Yeah, but then, me. you know, he didn't really back it up that well, which was a shame. But, 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 uh, uh, you know, I think it's not like I think in in the case of ham radio, learning Morse code. This is what Eric Sink wrote: is that there's a there's a parallel to be drawn between the ham radio people being required to learn Morse code just because in the old days they used to use Morse code uh, versus uh, me saying that programmers need to learn C because in the old days they used to use C. And and I think the key difference uh, between those two uh, is that um, excuse me, Morse code is not the fundamental way radio communication takes place. It's not, it's not what's, what's there at a lower level. In other words, the C programming language, uh, although this may surprise some people, but the C programming language is a kind of a way of looking at the programming work that you do every day, uh, kind of at a more base, a more theoretical or a more primitive level, understanding the CPU uh, kind of at a, at a simpler level. It's sort of like, you know, slow down and let's look at the exact steps that are taking place here. Even if there's nothing, nothing more than understanding uh, what exactly is involved in string processing on a, on a CPU, you know, if that was the only thing you learned from learning C, was realizing what it means for there to be a string algorithm, what it means for copying a string to, you know, what what, what why is it that the CPU can't copy a string with the same amount of work as it copies an integer? And okay, can, can, can I, I agree with what you're saying. So, so that's the kind of can stuff I, that I, you would want to learn in C. Whereas, and so it does have value for a programmer doing C sharp to learn that stuff, I believe. And uh, even if you're only doing C sharp, and uh, in a way that it doesn't have value for a for a radio operator who is never going to use Morse code and who is talking on the radio and and what they're talking about is not even being translated to Morse code by a compiler at some point. Right, and, and that's a totally fair point, and and a, a very good explanation of it. Uh, but let me use your example to to illustrate what I was talking about, which is how many times do you run into okay, I don't understand the way the string routine is working, or you're having a performance problem with the string routine, where understanding the lower level C would actually be useful, versus understanding why the people you're talking to about the app you're supposed to be building can't tell you what you need to actually build the app. In, in my experience, that is a far more common problem and that's really where you want to spend your time learning sort of new skills if you will <laughs> around basically just basic communication you know learning how to write well uh, learning how to speak in a way that's understandable to other people yeah, well those are two different the, the, the first is a skill that's useful to a programmer and the second is a skill that's useful to a systems analyst working in enterprise software development where they have to talk to users to figure out what the users want Wait, those so are, you think there's just different skills, different wall. jobs? No. Hey, wait, wait. You, if you do some, some there wall. doesn't have to be a wall. You might have to do both, in which case both skills will help you. I, every job I've ever been in, yeah. I, I, I had to do both. Well, my, and maybe it's you just know, the programmers at Fog Creek, there's a lot of them that really don't have to do both. Okay. Although it's it's weird. Okay, they're working on fog bugs, so they don't have to talk to users. But, but you know, uh, in, 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 you've been in jobs that are kind of more enterprise-y. In, in, in a job that's more uh, product-y, product-oriented, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you uh, there, there there can be an awful lot of people on the team that literally don't have to know anything about what the users want or what their domain is. They can just have something explained oh. and implemented. Hey, you know, I worked on medical software. 
That was like my that first job. Me to hear that though. Was medical that software. Really and all I ever learned was that if you take this is this is what I learned about medicine and I and I was able to create very very useful software. All I learned was that if you want to figure out the pH that's going on in a, in a cell, like the pH various areas in a cell, you can put that cell on a slide, put it on a microscope, take a picture of it at uh, light at the at the at the color of 440 hertz and then take another picture at the light with a color of 490 hertz and divide those and that ratio will, will tell you the actual pH uh, of the cell which is bizarre but true and I don't know why that works and I might be missing something it's actually it's 490 divided by 440 not what I said I think anyway whatever it gives you something that lets you see the pH in a cell so if you want to do an experiment where you're like what is the effect of blah 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 on the pH in the various parts of the cell then uh, what you can do is just just take a whole bunch of pictures on the, these two different colors uh, with these two different colors of light and go over every single pixel and divide the uh, uh, the uh, intensity that you get at that pixel. So this was this I've just explained something to you, which is all I needed to know about medicine to be able to spend a, a couple of years at Yale Medical School writing code that figured out the pH that was going on in a cell. That's all it took, and that's all the medicine that I had to learn. And I was able to create something that was useful to the to the researchers there. I, that's that's so strange that you would make that point. I I, I don't I have a hard time reconciling that with my work experience. Mm-hmm. Like we used to build E nine one one software, and I spent almost a lot of time coding, but I, I spent a lot of time also understanding what the heck E nine one one was. Like how did the operators expect it to work? How did the telephone system expect it to work? Yeah. You know, and how do the people who are buying it expect it to work? And really satisfying those people was much more important than, you know, whether a string routine was fast or not. Well, I had to and, say, well, yeah, that's interesting because for, for me, actually, <laughs> maybe we just had different experiences. In the case of that calculation, you got millions of pixels here that you have to divide. And so anything you can do to speed up the, the, the time it takes to divide all these pixels uh, uh, was time well spent. And I think I got some of my inner loops in assembly even. So... Uh, for me, actually, serving the needs of my users happen to be, you know, programming skills. And maybe it's because a doctor is better equipped to explain to a programmer what it is that they need their experiment to do, you know, in very specific mathematical terms. Whereas the kind of people that administer E nine one one systems maybe are not so good at explaining to programmers what they want. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it's just because you were doing systems analysis as as well as programming. Which is fine, but it's also possible to build teams where you have a systems analyst whose job is to translate. You know, it's in the movie Office Space. I explain what the customer wants to the programmers. I have people skills. Damn it! That's right. No, this is a very interesting topic. I'm glad we got onto this. What is wrong with you people? That's a great scene. That's a classic movie. We actually saw that. Did you see that in the theater? I'm like one of the very few people that actually saw that in the theater. Um, uh, my friend uh, Jeff Dalgus, who actually worked with me on these E911 systems, insisted that we had to see this movie. Uh, and I'm so glad we did because it's after the fact such a cult hit. Yeah. You know, I almost certainly didn't. Wow. but Very few people did. Maybe I did. Maybe I did. So thank you, Jeff, for that was an awesome getting me to do that. Okay, so uh, yeah, so th- so this uh, th- you know you may have to do both roles, and a lot of times you do, and a lot of times people forget that you need a systems analyst. Uh, and I'm using the really old-fashioned word. Um, the word I use is program manager, um, but that's just Microsoft's strange word for a systems analyst that's building spec software, speculation software that everybody's going to use without a specific uh, audience in mind. Yeah, I might want to come back to that on another podcast. I think that's a that's a really good topic. And I, I what John did mention towards the end, where he actually got uh, kind of a, a point going there, was uh, 
that uh, in a situation where the programmers have to spend a lot of time learning about the domain, maybe that's not a good place to be using all kinds of custom made-up programming languages and stuff like we do here uh, with Wasabi. And that's absolutely true, actually. I mean, Wasabi is a specific solution to specific problems that we had here, a code base in, in a primitive language that we wanted to improve, and we didn't want to rewrite the whole code base, uh, combined with the need to run on both Unix and Windows, and that's why we made Wasabi. But that's not something that would happen in almost any other circumstance, so it just doesn't it doesn't solve the problem for a lot of people uh, that they're actually having. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there aren't that many situations where I th- really think programmers need to be inventing languages. Certainly not a programmer working on some kind of medical uh, uh, work. There's just, you know, unless you give me a reason why you need to invent a new programming language, um, I think I would be highly skeptical. Not that it's... Right. All right. That's fair. Do we want to do one more question, or because we're at an hour? So Uh-oh. I don't know how far we well, are. Let's, uh, yeah, let's leave it for next week. We're at an hour. Okay. Wow. What? Yeah. What, where did the time go? Time flies. It's we're having fun. That's why. If you're uh, if you're listening to this, I've said this about a million times, but I'm going to be in Portland on Friday for RailsConf, the Ruby on Rails conference. Oh, did you figure out your topic? Uh, my topic is going to be why Java sucks. No. <laughs> you did you me. find that? I told you that you talked about I, that. That's not what I really talked about. That was just a joke that I put in the um, in the blog post. That's not actually okay. what I talked about. That is what you should have talked and about. And it was an Eclipse conference. Not really. It was an Eclipse conference. I did get that part wrong, but I was right about the title. I want to be clear. And I said it's Java the new COBOL. Uh, yeah, you're right. And that was just a joke, obviously. I would never. Java is the new COBOL in so many ways. Well, yeah, it's not really a joke. That's what's funny. About but I mean, it. COBOL was just horrible. I mean, it was a it was a horrible programming language from the you know ridiculous yes. throwback. Uh, little, pro- literally, no more expressive than assembler. Only uh, using a lot more syntax to express the same same things. Oh, so briefly, I know we're at the end. Yeah. But Joel, when I went to the Computer History Museum with Jared, we got to see one of the original manuscripts for the K and R book. They actually have it as an exhibit. No way. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's like one of the original manuscripts for the K&R book way back in the day. Wow. And they have samples of all the languages from the early languages like Fortran, COBOL. Yeah. Um, no, I'm forgetting one. But you know what surprised me? Algol. Uh, Algol is that. really, really modern looking. I had no idea because you're right. COBOL is horrible. You look at it and your eyes just bleed. I mean, it's all well, over the case. I, I, it's Algol, especially Algol 68, uh, which was a European standard, was very influential and influenced the whole – style of structured programming, which uh, Pascal was really pretty much a direct descendant of that, and C was you know, very heavily inspired by Algol. Yeah, I couldn't believe. I mean, this is an ancient language, you know, this is, you know, the 60s, and it was very, I could totally read it. I was like, wow, that's totally readable. It looks like modern code. Yeah. I was, anyway. It was the first structured programming out. language, um, uh, in the sense of having subroutines with arguments that you could call, and uh, the idea of blocks, and just the idea of the use of white space uh, to indicate uh, indenting, and you know, using indenting to indicate uh, structure, uh, not semantically, but uh, even in Fortran. Right. Uh, I mean, Fortran was not a structured language, really. You could call subroutines in Fortran, but it wasn't enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, just from the tiny little snippets they had on the placard, you could see this. This what you're talking about was very self-evident mm-hmm. that it was a very modern language mm-hmm. compared to the other ones. It made the other ones look very like weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think every programmer should learn Algol. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can skip that one. Yeah, I'm just thinking wistfully back to my high school days when I learned Algol. Uh, 
Yeah, I learned Pascal, so I learned a descendant of Algol, but I didn't learn Algol directly. Yeah, and we did not do any C, by the way. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's all all Pascal. Okay. Um, if you have any questions you want to ask us, or any any uh, suggestions, or uh, if you have any uh, ideas, if you for password management, that was my question for this week. Uh, how do you manage your passwords and keep them on synchronized on all your computers and stuff like that? Um, what, uh, record a little uh, audio file, MP3 uh, or Ogvorbis, and um, send that uh, little email attachment recording to uh, podcast. podcast at. At stackoverflow.com. And I predict you're going to be sorry you asked that. You're going to be very sorry. There was a lot of very strong feelings on this topic. So, Well, maybe we'll get something it's interesting. There must be somebody who's doing something better than I am. Remote desktoping in to my computer at work to find out what my password is for hammocks.com. And uh, we'll see you next week.